verses 1 to 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Let's pray together. Our great and gracious God, we're so thankful that we can come together to sing your praises, to be reminded of your goodness, your faithfulness and your love, and your desire to see a world reconciled to yourself, just as you have reconciled us to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that as we now open up the scripture that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives, that he would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear truth, soften our hearts where they need to be softened. And Lord, may every word that comes out of my mouth bring glory and honour to your beautiful name. Amen. Thank you so much for hosting me today. It's, it's a, a great pleasure to, to be invited to speak uh, at any one of our churches around New South Wales and the ACT, but the sense of coming home for me to the Central Coast is, always makes you know, coming up to this part of the world a really special thing for me. So today we're looking at a really famous story, and it's a particular phrase that, uh, that, that Christians have pondered for the last, you know, 2,000 years, this idea that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. And we'll certainly look at that particular phrase, but gosh, there's some phrases around it that Jesus uses that are a little less obvious to figure out what they mean. So we're going to look at this idea of the harvest being plentiful, even though often so, so often it doesn't feel plentiful, but we're going to look at some other things as well. The reading began this morning with two key words after this and as soon as you see that in a script, if a, if a preacher begins with a, a, you know, a reading that starts with after this and then ignores the prior context, they're not doing their job right. So after this, so the question is after what? And the after what frames this whole section? 
And Luke is doing this on purpose as he puts his gospel together because Luke is grabbing stories from here and there and all over the place and putting together this narrative, this idea in order to communicate a list of truths and um, realities to followers of Jesus to take forward. And this section actually begins all the way back at Luke chapter 7. Now, Back in the day, when Luke wrote his gospel, he didn't put in chapter 7, and he didn't have verse markers, and he didn't have, I'm reading from the NIV, he didn't have all the really helpful kind of subheadings. They're not scripture, but in this instance, they are very helpful to us. So if you do have your Bibles there, you might want to turn back to the, part, the first part of chapter 7. Now, what's going on just prior to that is a list of teachings from Jesus, and Luke moves from the teachings of Jesus into these ministry expressions of Jesus. And the first story is the faith of a particular centurion. Now, when you see the word centurion, what does that immediately tell you? Who are we dealing with here? Yeah, we're dealing with the Romans. So we're dealing with a Gentile. We're not dealing with a Jew. Now, this immediately should get us thinking, gosh, that's interesting. There's a story here about a Jewish teacher engaging with one of the Roman oppressors. Now, that's extraordinary. And the very fact that in this particular story, Jesus says of this Roman centurion, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel, is astonishing. And it tells you something about the mission of Jesus that he posits Gentiles in such a positive light. The next story we see in John in Luke chapter 7 is that Jesus raises a widow's son in verse 11. And we're going to race through all this section. But this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jesus goes and puts his hand on the coffin. Guess what that makes him? That makes him unclean to be near the dead body. So Jesus makes himself unclean and then he spends time with a widow. Now, a widow means her husband has died and now her son has died. So if you're a good Jew interpreting this, the way that you interpret that is, gosh, this woman must have done something terrible for the Lord to punish her like that. And Jesus won't have any part of it. He raises the son up and reunites them together, mother and son. It gives you an idea of how Jesus treats those that society says is cursed or unclean. And then there's some stories about how John the Baptist gets concerned with why Jesus is running around doing all the healings and all of the all of the preaching of how God seems to love everyone. He's very concerned that there's not a lot of judgment going on. And Jesus says... Go and tell John this, blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. And then the very next story is that Jesus is anointed. I love the NIV, they're so prude. Jesus is anointed anointed by a sinful woman. That's that's Christian code, friends. (laughs) She's a prostitute. Jesus is anointed by a prostitute. Guess what that makes him? It makes him unclean. 
It makes him unclean and it is putting him into direct contact with a person that the religious society said was detestable to God. Indeed, within the law of Moses, such a woman should have been executed. And Jesus allows her to anoint him and indeed says she's anointing me for burial. That's extraordinary. Jesus includes those whom have normally been excluded. And then we're into chapter 8, and Jesus tells that beautiful story about the parable of the sower. And there are many types of environments where the seed is scattered. And then he calms a storm, showing that he has power and authority over nature. And then they sail over to the region of the Gerasenes. Why does that matter? It tells us they're in Gentile territory by this stage. And over in the, in the region of the Gerasenes, he finds a man who is possessed by many demons. Indeed, the demon calls itself legion, which means many, 50 in fact. And what does Jesus do with this man? Well, he throws the demons out and then he sits and talks with the man. Now, this man was unclean. He was demon-possessed, cursed by God. Are you getting the picture here that the way that Jesus works with the society around him is not in the way that other good religious leaders did? Those that he includes, those that he engages with, is just extraordinary within the cultural context that he finds himself. If you turn the page, the next story that we see is Jesus healing a sick woman. Again, this is the NIV being polite. This woman is sick because she's been menstrually hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now, aside from that being a hideous affliction and her iron levels being totally, totally depleted, she would have no energy, she spent all of her money on doctors, there's no healing for her. If you know anything about Jewish law, when a woman was menstruating, she wasn't allowed anywhere near the temple because that made her ritually unclean. And what does she do? She reaches out and she touches the edge of Jesus' cloak, which makes him unclean, right? But to make matters worse, he then wanders off to the house of a girl who has died. So she's dead. And what does he do? He marches in and there she is, laid laid out on a bed, stone cold dead, and he takes her by the hand, which makes him unclean. And what does he say? He says, get up. It's like me with my teenage kids, (laughs) right? And believe me, whenever I touch them, I feel ritually unclean. (laughs) I mean, it's fantastic though, isn't it? The way that Jesus just breaks all these social conventions. And then he feeds the 5,000 with just a picnic's worth of food. Sends out the 12. Peter has that extraordinary confession I get it. You are the Christ, the Messiah, son of the living God. And then the next story we see is that Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain. And who does he appear with? Moses and 
Elijah. Moses and Elijah. I mean, why not Abraham and David? They're pretty famous too, right? Why not Adam? Why not, you know, Solomon or Noah? Or what? Why, why Moses and Elijah? Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he received from God what? The Ten Commandments, which formed the basis of Jewish law, formed the basis of Jewish religion, the written code. And Elijah represented what? The prophets. Elijah was the archetypal prophet who saved Israel from moving into apostasy by worshipping the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So who does Jesus appear with? The law and the prophets. And what did Jesus say he'd come to fulfil? The law and the prophets. And this is how he's doing it. It is just extraordinary, friends, the way that Jesus is building this narrative and Luke is conveying it to us. And the next story is the healing of a boy with an evil spirit. And again, Jesus reaches out to one who is afflicted and accursed by God. And then finally, before we get to where we're up to, and I'm going to read this out to you because it's so hilarious to me. All of this has happened and the disciples are watching it. So the whole point of this sequence is that Jesus includes those who have been excluded, right? So we're in verse 51 of chapter 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he's up in Galilee and he's heading south to Jerusalem. That takes him through the area called Samaria. And Samaria was actually the ten tribes of Israel who had formed the northern kingdom. So Israel had been one state, 12 tribes, and then the, then the you know, north and south split. It's kind of like Queensland, New South Wales, around state of origin time, right? And the, you know, the crazy people up in the north, the people down south didn't like them at all. Now, the reason they didn't like them is that around the 7th century BC, the Assyrians rode into town. And this was different to what Nebuchadnezzar did in Jerusalem several hundred years later. What occurred here is that the Assyrians just moved in. They just said, we're here, we're just taking over your land. It's it happened a couple of hundred years ago in Australia as well. You know, people just moved in. And the problem was that the ten tribes of the north then began to worship the Assyrian gods and practice the Assyrian religion and take on the Assyrian customs and intermarried amongst the Assyrians. And God had called his people out to be separate and a light to the nations. And the tribes down south, they're the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they're looking at their northern brothers and sisters and going, you guys had the truth. You had the truth and you let it go. Now the southern tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, thereafter became known by the dominant tribe, the tribe of Judah. If you want to know where the, where the, the, the word Jew comes from, that's where it comes from. So they look at their northern brothers and sisters and they said, you had the truth and you've let it go. You are worse than the pagans. Mm. So that's the context of Samaria. 
So Jesus sends messages on ahead, verse 52, went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. So it's actually completely culturally fine that the Samaritans didn't welcome him because they hated Jews as much as Jews hated Samaritans. They thought the Jews were arrogant God-botherers. They thought that they just knew everything, that everything happened around Jerusalem, that God wasn't in Samaria, etc., etc. And this teacher was heading to Jerusalem, so he's a jerk, so we don't like him. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Anger issues much? (laughs) No wonder they were called the sons of thunder. Anyway, Jesus turns and rebukes them like, you idiots, have you not been seeing what I've been doing? I include the excluded. Those that you think are far from the kingdom of God are right near the kingdom of God. You morons. And then he speaks about the cost of following him. And then we get up to where I'm actually preaching from. So start your watches now. So what we see here is hints of the coming kingdom. That the coming kingdom doesn't look like what the Jews thought it was going to look like. And then Jesus says in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. I'm wondering if you know, are familiar with the name Mordecai Ham. Are you familiar with that name? It's a great name, isn't it? Mordecai Ham. If I had any more children, I'd call them Mordecai. That's a, it wouldn't even matter if it was a girl. Mordecai. It's just it's so fantastic to me. Now, most people don't know the name of Mordecai Ham because Mordecai Ham is really a footnote in Christian history. Mordecai Ham was a preacher in the southern states of the United States uh, in the early part of the 20th century. He was born in the latter part of the 19th century and had an itinerant gospel ministry, tent ministry in the, in the religious evangelistic campaigns that dominated the scene in the 1920s and 30s in the United States of America. And Mordecai Ham was preaching at a particular tent in North Carolina and he invited people to come to Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And a person stood up that day A person by the name of Billy Graham stood up and made his commitment to Jesus. And the only reason we know about Mordecai Ham is because Billy Graham was converted under his ministry. And if you have any appreciation of evangelical Christian history in the 20th century, Billy Graham is the standout figure in terms of how God used Uh, that particular man, to draw many, many, many thousands, perhaps millions, to himself. In fact, I went to the 1979 Billy Graham crusade at Randwick Racecourse. The only time I've been on a racecourse in my life. And I went to the Randwick Racecourse. I don't know why I was there. I was only eight years old. I didn't know who Billy Graham was. But there I was, and I remember distinctly just being amazed by how many people had gathered in that place. And probably there are... In fact, put your hand up if you went to any of the Billy Graham Crusades, 59, 69, 79. There you go. I mean, look at it, people. 
Unbelievable. This is the effect of this, of this American in Australia. It's just extraordinary to me. And so here's the thing. Jesus looks out at the harvest field and we can look at the harvest field and go, gosh, it's so big. There's so many there. It's so huge. And there are not enough workers. But guess what? When Jesus looks at the harvest, he sees workers, right? Because Billy Graham was once in the harvest. So I wonder who are you sharing the gospel with? Because when that person becomes a follower of Jesus, that person moves from the harvest to the harvesters. So every time someone is one to Christ, the harvesters grow. So friends, share the gospel. And don't be afraid to share the gospel. And you might think to yourself, gosh, I'm not eloquent. I could never stand up on the front here and and preach out of the word of God. Or I I, I could never lead a Bible study. Who cares? Who heard of Mordecai Ham? It doesn't matter. Because God is doing his thing, just stay faithful. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Friends, the workers are in the harvest. And the workers include, according to Revelation 7, men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. Everyone. The workers include those whom are currently worshipping a different God. Money. Or a political position or the Buddha the harvesters are in the harvest so pray for more workers and get out there and start harvesting and then we hit verses 3 and 4 two of the more enigmatic verses in the New Testament because sometimes Jesus says things that don't really make sense at all I've got uh, really good friends they They owned the largest PR company in the Southern Hemisphere, Howarth Communications. And uh, Vicky Howarth is now a pastor in in the church that I attend. And I'm in a home group with her and her husband. And Vicky says to me fairly regularly, she, she says, you know, Andrew, what Jesus needed was a really good PR agent. Because she reads verses like this, Go, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And she's like, we should have workshopped that one and come up with something, you know, better. Like we're sending you out as wolves amongst the lambs, for example. It's funny, isn't it? Jesus said the Lord, uh, asked the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the field. So off you go because I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. It's such a terrible PR pitch. You can imagine the disciples, they're like, what? I think I'm going to go back to fishing. Lambs among wolves. It's not, it's not a fair fight, is it? Because, you, get, you know, you've got your little lamb here and you've got your pack of wolves here. Who's going to win? Like every time. Because the wolf is bigger, it's stronger, its teeth are sharper It can work in a team. It's got terrifically strong claws. And it's a carnival. The lamb 
I'm no farmer, but even I know sheep are stupid, right? <laughs> the lamb's not, you're not going to survive five seconds out there. It's not, it's not a fair fight. The only advantage, the singular advantage that the lamb has is the shepherd. That's all. That's all. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Jesus says, go, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Friends, it is not a fair fight. And if you go out there without Jesus, you will get torn to shreds. But here's the point. We need to learn the humility of recognising that the task that Jesus has called us to is bigger than we can accomplish. It's going to take more power, more authority, more brilliance. And the only way that we are going to survive is if the Lord himself empowers us to the task. And what does he say in Matthew 28? Go into the world and preach the good news and baptise people in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And how does that end? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Sorry, I'm paraphrasing. I will be with you right to the very end of the age. Amen and amen. Friends, we are lambs among wolves. and we, le- we need to learn the humility of dependency upon Christ. Verse 4 says, do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Well, that seems weird. And that seems really weird for me because I work in a mission agency. We've been talking about it this morning. We can't send Tobias and Heather back um, until they're at 100%. But Jesus is saying here, don't take a purse or bag or sandals? Should we just be sending people out with, with a lack of resource and ill-equipped? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to use a, a metaphor to, for, to kind of explain this. I, I want you to imagine that you decide to go on a drive. Are you going to drive to Broken Hill? Just on a whim. And off you go. You get in your car. But you don't take your wallet. And you don't take any clothing with you. In fact, you don't take anything at all. And you drive out. You drive, driving towards Broken Hill. And somewhere around, depending upon what kind of vehicle you've got, somewhere kind of around Dubbo Way, you run out of fuel. So your car conks out around Dubbo. And you get out of your car and you realise, oh, no, I don't, I don't have my wallet. And, oh, I didn't pack any clothes or anything. Now, apart from you being stupid, right, that's, which is clear, you then are stuck in Dubbo with nothing, right? And so you're wandering around thinking, what am I going to do about this? And a towie comes and sees that your car is pulled over in a no-stopping zone. Hitches your car up, off he goes, right? So you've got no car, you've got no money, you've got no clothes, and suddenly the sun goes down. You realise, gosh... In Dubbo at night, in the middle of May, it gets a bit cold. What are you going to do? How are you going to keep warm? You can't go to the local motel. You don't have any cash. So you, you huddle yourself. You find a park bench and you huddle yourself in a ball trying to stay as warm as you can. But it's frightfully cold. And just imagine you're there huddling, freezing in Dubbo, thinking probably should have brought a wallet and a jumper and somebody comes up to you and says what are you doing and you say 
are freezing. <laughs> why, why are you on the park bench? Oh, well, I, you know, I wandered off from the central coast and I didn't bring any money and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they say, hey, are you cold? You go, mm-hmm. Why don't you come to my house? I'll give you a hot meal. You can take a hot shower. There's a warm bed waiting. And they invite you into their home. Don't you think that's a game changer? And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do not take a purse or bag or sandals. He's not saying go ill-equipped. What he is saying here is learn the humility of being hosted rather than being the hosts. You see, I think we Christians are, in the West particularly, are kind of used to having cultural authority, cultural power, setting the agenda. We're we're very good at being hosts and we enjoy practising hospitality with people. I mean, Jesus says, they'll know you are Christians by your love. Good. But I tell you what, if you are a person who is suddenly hosted by a community, it shifts your attitude to that community. And one of the problems with with us in the West in terms of our Christianity is that we can begin to look at other movements as oppositional to us. So we can think of Islam as oppositional to us and we see that as a blockage rather than learning that when you are hosted by a Muslim, they will honour you as an honoured guest. Let me tell you a story about this that will help you understand it. As As I mentioned earlier, my wife grew up in Indonesia And she tells a story of, uh, as a kid, they had uh, some other friends come from another part of the world into the same area as them. And they arrived with their family and they got to know them. And what what Kath and her family realised that over the next several weeks, just barrels and barrels and barrels of stuff arrived. And one of the things that arrived was a washing machine. And Catherine was like, what even is that? This is 1975 or 76. What even is that? Oh, it's a washing machine. Oh, what do you need a washing machine for? Oh, we put the clothes in it and it kind of washes them for us. Wow. Oh, what do you do in the meantime? Oh, we go and we do ministry. Oh, I see. Okay, so the washing machine allows you to go and do ministry. Yes. Now, where was Kath's mum, meantime? She was down at the river, washing clothes with the women of the village because they'd learned to be hosted by the community. Do you see the difference that it makes? when we change our attitude to the way that we have things. And the problem with us in the West is we want to be self-sufficient. We want to be separated out. We don't want people to host us. We want to be able to look after our own needs. But friends, I know, I know that when we arrive in countries that are deeply impoverished and we arrive with our wealth and our capacity, it creates a barrier between us and the community we're trying to reach so Jesus says let it go learn the humility of being hosted and then Jesus says something even more enigmatic do not greet anyone on the road and this one just seems insane because isn't it the point 
of greeting people. Isn't that the whole point, Jesus? It's a tricky one for us because we don't see the cultural context here because we all read the Bible through lenses and the lens through which we read is a Western lens and the Western lens is the lens of law and grace. And what I mean by that is the speed sign when you go out on the road, when you leave church this morning, will tell you that the law says you can drive at 60 kilometres an hour. And if you drive more than that, you are breaking the law. If you drive at 60 or just under 60, you are accomplishing what we would call good civic duty, as long as you're not swerving all over the place. That's the idea of law and grace. That's the worldview that we have. But the culture that Jesus is speaking into is not a law and grace culture, it's an honour-shame culture. And in any human interaction, the parties are working out who is at the top of the tree here, because I need to defer to who's at the top of the tree. And this is how it works. We're not talking about a four-lane highway here, we're talking about a goat track. And you are wandering along the goat track with your entourage. It might be your possessions. You might have a wheelbarrow if you're a fairly poor person. If you're a wealthier person, you might have a carriage. But you've got your family with you. You've got your possessions with you. Um, you've got the pots and pans that you eat with as you camp by the side of the road. It's, you know, it's bulky. And you're sort of wandering along on this goat track pathway and you see in the distance another entourage coming towards you with their pots and their pans and their sheep and their donkeys and their carriage and their whatever. And it's a goat track. It's not as if we've got lanes here and you just sort of pass one another by simply. What happens here is you come together and one party or the other has to move to the side. Now, how do you work out who does that? That's where honour shame comes in. So I'm at the head of my entourage and Joel is coming towards me at the head of his entourage, right? And so I'm thinking as I come towards Joel and his crew, right, what's good about me? And this is very distasteful, but this is literally how it would work out. I'd be going... Hello, friend. My name is the Reverend Andrew Palmer. I'm an ordained minister of the Baptist Association of New South Wales and the ACT. That's 350 churches, give or take, depending upon, you know, who's doing what at the time. Uh, I'm a leader in the denomination. In fact, I'm the director of Global Interaction, which is the mission agency of the Baptist churches of New South Wales and the ACT. Uh, I have undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in theology. Uh, I'm asked to speak on platforms here, there and everywhere. And basically I'm trumpeting how good I am to Joel, who's coming towards me. And meantime, Joel is thinking, right, I'm going to tell him all the good things about me. I'm a a pastor of a growing church on the central coast. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I actually worked in the nation's capital, the ACT, for quite... I don't know, that probably wouldn't work for you, but anyway. <laughs> so on and so forth, right? Basically, we are, we are having kind of a power game, working out who has more power. And once we work out who has more power, then whoever has less pulls aside and allows the other party to go past. And Jesus says, don't do that. You don't need to do that. Bishop Desmond Tutu tells the story of when he was just a boy in apartheid South Africa. 
And uh, he tells this story of when he was eight years old, uh, walking down the footpath with, with his mother. And back in the day, if you were walking on the footpath as a coloured person in South Africa and a white person came towards you, you literally had to step off and onto the road and as the white person walked past, you had to bow to them. Disgraceful, right? Anyway, uh, Desmond Tutu and his mother are walking down the footpath and striding towards them is a tall white man in a suit that speaks of power. Right? And Tutu says that he was stepping off the footpath onto the road when he saw something remarkable, that this man walking towards them actually himself stepped off the road and stopped and called them through. And Tutu said he just stared at him as he went by. And what happened is as Desmond Tutu and his mother walked by, the man bowed. And Desmond Tutu said, who who is that man? And she said, he's an Anglican priest. And Desmond Tutu in his autobiography says, that day I determined I would go into the ministry because he saw what it could do. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? When he says don't greet anyone on the road, he's not asking you to be socially uh, impractical or rude. He's saying don't play the power game. Learn the humility of lower social status. And when you do that, your ministry effectiveness will increase. So how do we bring all this together? In verse 9, Jesus says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. When we learn the humility of seeing others as better than ourselves, when we learn the humility of being hosted rather than being the host, and when we learn the humility of depending upon Christ, it gives us a full picture of who Jesus is. We begin to follow the servant king who came not to serve but came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we get into contact with that humility of the king, something profound happens. What does Jesus say in verse 9? Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. How is the kingdom of God near that family that's hosting you? Because the kingdom of God is in you it's in you the very power of the risen Jesus is in you the power of God the one who created the universe with a word the one who threw stars into space is in you the humble king who gave his life as a ransom for many his resurrection power is in you So friends, when you look at the harvest and you see the enormous breadth of the harvest and then you look inside and you see that the power of the risen Christ is in you, it is with confidence that you can go into the harvest field, raising up new workers for the harvest. And where does that happen? 
That happens across the fence and across the sea. Amen.